The Canucks make more changes in their hockey operations department. It is Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks. I'm Jamie Dodd. My co-host is Canucks insider Thomas Drantz, who also covers The Athletic. Also broke today's news about changes uh, in the Canucks Hockey Ops Department. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. AvenueMachinery.ca. And today, the news coming out, Drancer, that the Canucks have made some changes to their amateur scouting department, specifically letting four scouts go from that department. Yeah, and the industry reaction is not surprised, right? I mean, there was an expectation that changes would be made. The Canucks have brought in a lot of executives with scouting backgrounds. Uh, Derek Clancy, of course, is an old player personnel guy with a ton of experience on the pro side. Cammie Granato, a pro scout with the Seattle Kraken prior to her, you know, minor relocation up the I-5 to work with the Vancouver Canucks in her, uh, the city she calls home. And of course, Patrick Alvin, the Canucks general manager, a longtime amateur scout with the Pittsburgh Penguins and the Montreal Canadiens organizations uh, post-playing career. So there was an expectation that there would be changes made. And I think the industry reaction to the moves today, honestly, is that they were more conservative than some expected. I I think there was almost an expectation that things might get blown out to a further degree than they did. But my sort of expectation would be that the changes will be very dramatic once the pieces that remain are reorganized. So to summarize for everybody, the Canucks let go of four amateur scouts today, uh, including, you know, longstanding organizational member Pat Conacher, who also had administrative responsibilities in the American League over the years, uh, a cross-checker, a senior cross-checking scout uh, named Derek Richard, um, in addition to two other amateur scouts, Brandon Benning and um, Leonardin, Tim Leonardin. You know, when we're talking about scouts, we're not talking about executives or coaches. We're not talking about million-dollar employees. We're talking about hardworking people, earning the types of salaries, you know, we all do, our listeners and, and you and I. And and so, you know, these are tough days for an organization. These are tough decisions. And the Canucks decided ultimately to make changes going into, a- ahead of sort of pro and amateur meetings, which the club will host over the next two and a half weeks, in part because this gives everyone, you know, there's there's now really three months worth of hiring season for these people in terms of runway to, to catch on with another team. Uh, I, you know, I, I've been told that there these decisions are more about a substantive change in how the club wants to approach talent acquisition and scouting as opposed to a, a reflection of any individual's capabilities. And I want to make that very clear. Uh, that said, this is the start of, you know, a, a more dramatic change that will absolutely have huge um, impacts within the amateur scouting side. Now, it's not just that there's been dismissals. I do expect that there's going to be some reassignments, um, some clarifications. I, I think there's going to be a whole new level of guidance under the auspices of Cami Granado, who, you know, is overseeing a ton of this, as Jim Rutherford said last week. And, and that wasn't just lip service. I think Cami Granado is elbow deep in, in some of the changes on both the amateur and the pro side. All of that said, I don't expect significant changes to come prior to the offseason anyway on the pro side of the ledger. Uh, director Todd Harvey is going to remain in place, it seems, on the amateur side, and I would expect the same out of Brett Henning uh, on the pro side. He's the director of pro scouting. 
that's a relatively lean staff, to be honest, in in terms of pro on the pro side. On the pro side, it's, it's yeah, four well, or ju- five names. Just looking at the uh, at the Canucks staff page, it's Brett Henning as the director, and then four listed as pro scouts. Yeah, and and some highly regarded uh, folks in there, specifically Neil Komodowski, uh, who's got a lot of regard uh, within the industry as a, as a relatively progressive. Um, Mind and obviously uh, has pro experiences is based out of Missouri. So I would expect them to maybe add a body on the pro side, but I'm not expecting a, a house cleaning uh, in the same sort of manner that we've seen today. Uh, and the news sort of hit the organization last night um, in terms of changes on the amateur side. And, and of course, on the amateur side, in addition to some reassignments, probably some changes in terms of how they do things. Certainly new guidance coming from Granado, uh, you know, by way of Alvin. I do think you're going to see bodies added, particularly on that side of the operation, like more significantly, and probably some reassignments, probably some guys who, you know, have their responsibilities elevated or diminished, uh, who change areas, who may change areas of focus. Uh, so it's going to be fascinating to watch that play out over the coming months. Meetings will take place on on both sides of the ledger in the coming weeks. I would expect sort of more announcements, more formalized moves in terms of uh, figuring out exactly how this new group's going to work together and, and who exactly is going to be part of the new group, who joins the organization. Some people may join the organization after this draft year. And of course, the Canucks are likely to have the 15th overall pick. That's going to be the t- organization's top prospect the moment they make that selection. So, you know, the stakes are not minimal here. There's also the opportunity, of course, to add draft capital. And by the way, the organization should absolutely go about doing that. They absolutely need a ton of prospects and, and a ton of help. And if you look over, you know, one other thing to, to sort of just note here. If you look over Vancouver's draft history, it's a mostly sorted tome. Uh-huh. For 20 years, it's been pretty rough. The fact is, though, is that in the last decade, let's just isolate to the last decade, there were some bright spots. And and this may may be ignored, but be, in part because there's some like good process, bad outcome misses in terms of, like Hunter Shinkarik. That wasn't a bad pick. Yeah, uh, Cole Lind. That was not a bad pick. Like I was at a draft table. I was at a draft table that year. I don't know if I've told the story, but I was at a draft table that year and and picking fortieth, and and like people with their fingers crossed, being like Lind or Robertson, Lind or Robertson, right? Jason Robertson, 40-goal scorer, Cole Lind, fringe NHLer, were like the guys equal footing that that the organization that I was working for hoped dropped. So, you know, it's not not like the Cole Lind thing. Yeah, the player didn't pan out, but that doesn't mean the pick was poor, right? Like, it's really hard to evaluate 18-year-olds. Some guys take a step like Robertson did and become 40-goal studs. Some guys sort of just find their level and and aren't quite NHL regulars. and Cole Lynn, by the way, may yet become an NHL regular. He's just, you know, not going to be a 40-goal scoring stud like Robertson. Doesn't mean that the pick or the process was bad, right? Those were those were viewed by some of the smartest scouts that I've ever worked with or seen operate as equal assets at the time. Well, and even Cole Lynn's immediate trajectory after that draft pick was upwards. upwards significantly totally. Same upwards. Same with Gadjevich, yeah. right? So, and that's, and that's the other thing you have to note. You're, you're picking stocks, right? And they can go up and down in value. Like, people will say that Adam Gaudet, for example, didn't pan out. And it's like, first of all, Adam Gaudet was a third-line center who scored at a 40-point over 82-game pace 
on his entry-level de- deal in a year that the Canucks won a round. You can't tell me that's not a good pick. From a fifth rounder. From a fifth rounder. And he won the Hobie Baker, and there were various moments in his career trajectory where he would have had massive, like, could have been the centerpiece of a big deal type value, right? That's a good pick. Um, you know, Tyler Madden. Yeah. I was Tyler just Madden. Say that regardless yeah. of whether or not he has an NHL career or not, and, you know, he hasn't had a couple, he hasn't had the best sort of transition to pro, the pro level. I still think he's an excellent prospect. Um, you know, they monetized that. That was a good, that was a pick that they turned into a good player with an accompanying second round pick. And if they'd kept the guy, we'd say, hey, that's a great process. Good job. Tyler Foley's awesome. So, anyway, if you look at the last decade, there were a sort of three distinct eras almost, right? You had the latter stage Gillis era mm-hmm. where they sort of finally kind of figured it out. And you have that 2013 draft class. Is it 13 where they draft Bo Horvat? Nine, Horvat, yeah, Shinkarik. Home run pick, Shinkarik. And there's a couple other interesting players in that Was that the class. S- Jordan Subban, Cole Castles Jordan year? Jordan Subban, Cole Castles, that's yeah. right. Um, and, and anyway, that's like a totally fine class. There's guys there who were intriguing anyway. Uh, and then you have that same group sort of run the next year, that that class, uh, with, you know, albeit albeit some significant disagreement about how to use the sixth overall pick. The club made a mistake there. But, you know, you end up getting Jared McCann, Thatcher Demko, and... Nikita Triampkin and Gustav Forsling in that draft. Right. Not bad. Yeah. Not terrible. Ha- <laughs> you know, if a couple things break differently, it actually has the potential to be an incredible yeah. draft. Or or if or if the uh, scouts' um, word had ruled and they'd ended up taking Larkin at six, which was, you know, there were, there were big organizational fights for Ehlers, Larkin, Vertanen, and Nylander. And unfortunately, the club just made the wrong decision there. But... Um, yeah, I mean, easily that draft class. That draft class still produces two bona fide top lineup NHL players in McCann and Demko. I mean, you know that. Anyway, they and a major contributor in Gustav Forsling. The next year too, you get Besser at the end of the first round. Brilliant, right? Thereafter, though, they st- and got at and got at in the fifth round, and thereafter they start to make changes. Right, that's when. Um, Crawford gets blown out. He ends up being one of the most highly regarded pro scouts in the industry in Montreal. Uh, changes come. The 16 draft was a nadir for the organization, right? Truly, they'd empowered a new director of amateur scouting in Judd Brackett, but really the process was governed by a very small tent, specifically under the um, you know low consultation auspices of, of Jim Benning who was fixated on one finished defender from, you know, the U-20s on. Uh, club makes the Olevi pick. Um, there's really nothing of value there except maybe William Lockwood. And even if Will Lockwood makes it, like, guys, he's a fourth-line player. Like, I'm sorry. Yep. There's not a lot of offensive pop there. That's not a win, even though at the 64th overall pick, to get a guy like Lockwood is totally fine. Thereafter, you get three years, and this is like the best three years of Canucks drafting, right? Because they take Pedersen and Hughes, and sure, we're not going to sing huge kumbayas to them for that, but you come away with, you know, you come away from those trio of classes with, what are you looking at? You're looking at- Quinn Hughes, Elias Pedersen, Cole Lynn, Jonah Gadjevich, Michael DiPietro, Jack Rathbone. So the, so the, the 2017 one is Pedersen, Lind, Gadjevich, DiPietro, Rathbone off the top. Right. And then 2018, you have Hughes, Jet Wu, Tyler Madden, first right. three. So, and so two guys monetized. Jet Wu doesn't quite hit. Next, next pick off the boards, Romanov. Club didn't feel they had enough. The 2018 class is an interesting one too because Drake Batherson goes in the fifth round. The club came around to him too late, 
and didn't feel they'd done their homework enough to insert him into the process. Um, that's an unfortunate miss. And then and then Jet Wu over Romanov. Um, same thing with Romanov. They just didn't feel like they had enough of their homework done to take a, a, a Russian-based player where they weren't sure about the timelines and the contracts and how it would all work. Uh, so they end up taking Jet Wu. Nonetheless, you you end up with Hughes and, and who's the other guy? There was one other good... Oh, Madden. You end up with yeah. a, a Hobie Baker winner and Quinn Hughes out of that draft class. That's really good. And then the next year, of course, we know that that draft class has a chance to be really good too, even even through the later rounds in 2019. But Pod Coles and Hoaglander is as good as it gets. Yeah, and then you've got Silovs and uh, the other one who's still really relevant is Aiden McDonough as well right. in the seventh round. And, and, and Arvid Kosmar. Yes. Who, if he ever can stay healthy... Could could have some. There could be something there. So, um, anyway, you get three good years, and then they sort of let Judd Brackett walk, and things end acrimonious in an acrimonious fashion. And then you're back to these two draft classes. Now, Todd Harvey is overseeing them, and, and Todd Harvey has a fair bit of regard within the industry, right? Uh, but you know, I I think the process became small tent again, and. You look through those draft classes, and it's very likely that you're getting nothing of significant value out of them. And that's not to say, like, there's a couple guys who are sort of intriguing through that oh, list. Of course, Victor and person, and, and I mean certainly Ironberg with, with the most recent one. I mean, you know, we're not even a year out from the draft, totally. right? So, but your point is well taken. There's a very good chance that we look at those two drafts. I would say a high probability that we look at those two draft classes, and it looks like the depths of the Mike Gillis era, where you've traded your highest value picks. And you get nothing out of the later rounds. Uh, you know, Yoni Yermo had a decent season, but the fact that he's still never on the radar for the Finnish national team, even their U20 team, that's a very bad sign at this point. Um, he goes a few picks before Justin Sordiff. Like, that's tough to swallow, right? Um, so anyway, we'll see. I, Danila Klimovic is obviously an interesting prospect. Uh, there's some teams that have a lot of time for those puck skills and would love to be the team to find out if that lottery ticket hurts. Yeah. And, hits, and so. the thing with the most recent draft, you know, they take Klimovich at 41. They didn't pick again until 137 in the I fifth know, round, I know. right? So it's evaluating those, these two most recent drafts. You can look at the picks and where guys were taken and who was taken right after them, but it's also just, they didn't have any good picks. They had yeah. no good picks and it speaks to a larger issue, obviously. Well, but. and, and, you know, I, I thought the, and I brought it up, but the Alvin comment about filing draft reports like in a timely and organized fashion, right? I, I do think some of what you're hearing and some of what you're about to see are that, you know, there's a new hand on the wheel of the organization. And as they've tried to sort of steer the rudder left or right, they've found, hey, we might not have much. <laughs> we might not have much. Like this might not be a, we need to steer in a different direction situation so much as we need to rebuild the infrastructure and the collaborative environment we need to compete with the best, most efficient teams in the league. And I think you're going to see fundamental changes, fundamental differences in guidance uh, in terms of how this organization goes about procuring and evaluating talent. And it's sorely needed. You know, are you going to get back to the level that this club was from 17 to 19? No, like, I don't I don't know that you will. You look at the work that Minnesota's done the last two drafts and, and compare it with the work Vancouver has. I mean, they lost a lot of talent when they permitted Bracket to walk, period, period. There should be no disagreement out there. This is not some meme. This is not some like, well, he gets all the credit. Just, just look at the record. Look at the Minnesota prospect pool and how it's been rebuilt over the last two years. Like, it, come on. You just, just, there is 
a unique talent there that the organization lost. It was it was a mistake. But there's some really smart people now who are going to try and put this back sort of together. And and look, a new era of Canucks scouting is desperately needed. Alvin and Rutherford's record in Pittsburgh was not particularly glowing. When you go look at the the draft outcomes, they did far better in free agency with NCAA free mm-hmm. agents and, and some of the other sort of non-traditional forms of acquisition. But they also traded all of their first round. They made one first round pick in like eight years in yep. Pittsburgh. And as I've often said, like Mike Gillis has taken a lot of criticism in this market for his draft record. The biggest mistake Mike Gillis ever made was not who he picked. It was that he made four first round picks in in during the Canucks' five year Stanley Cup window. Like those those all of those picks should have been Antoine Vermette and you know whomever, right? Like ex player that moved at the deadline, right? The, the team should have been all in. Who cares? Who cares yeah, about who, the? Who cares about missing on Nicholas Jensen with pick twenty nine? <laughs> totally. And and even if you go through and like read the list of guys, it's like oh Brandon Saad. It's like yeah great. He wasn't good till twenty fourteen. The window was closed by then. Who cares? So anyway, uh, a new era of scouting is about to is about to start. The changes made today were relatively pedestrian. This club has a lot of work to do to rebuild their sort of approach to the amateur side. And yet there are some good bones here, particularly if those, you know, intelligent people who remain within the organization, if Todd Harvey, if, you know, the incorporation of analytics and Mm -hmm. and video scouting and the role that's played, particularly in them taking some pretty interesting flyers out of Sweden over the last two drafts, right? So some of those late round picks, the Myrenberg person, there's one other guy, um, Hugo Gabrielson, Gabrielson, like there's some intriguing defensemen that they've found in the lower, uh, echelons of, of uh, the Swedish leagues. There's some interesting plays you can begin to see form if you can graft that onto you know a healthier, more collaborative process, a more modern process, which seems to be the organization's intent. Uh, I, you know, I think you can begin to make some hay in the years to come. And, and that's crucial because there's a lot of restocking that this club has, uh, you know, a, a desperate need for. Yeah, and as, as always with restocking your uh, your prospect pipeline, it's it's about making really smart picks, but it's also about accumulating a lot of picks. Uh, 650, 650, by the way, is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative, visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. And as you said off the top, you know, this the moves today shouldn't be read as a verdict on the ability of the scouts that were let go, no. right? This is ultimately just uh, a change know, in approach and focus. Exactly. And as we have heard and seen already many times over from Jim Rutherford, he's not afraid to put his stamp on this organization. And I, to me, this is just a continuation of that. And particularly with drafting, it it can be so hard from the outside to get a read on what the process looks like. Is the process working? You know, it's so easy to go to Hockey DB and say, okay, this team's a bad drafting team. This team's a good drafting team, the, right? Be, the hindsight is a very powerful tool when yeah. it comes to player evaluation, but especially when they're 17-year-olds. It's always more complicated than that. And my favorite example is probably the team that for a long time had like the gold standard reputation as, oh, incredible drafters, was the Detroit Red Wings, right? Yeah. And so much of that was based on Pavel Datsuk in the sixth round and the next year Henrik Zetterberg in the seventh round. Go look at the rest of those draft classes. Right. Zero. Zero from the rest of those draft classes, right? So whatever incredible magic they had to always pick the right players, it only applied to those two picks in those draft classes. And then they take Zadina over Quinn Hughes. And, you know, I I mean, (laughs) there's a lot of uh, issues. Which is not to say that 
different teams aren't better or worse at evaluating prospects and, and running the draft and how they approach the draft. It's just that there's so much noise because, as you said, you're talking about 17-year-olds. And good luck projecting what a 17-year-old is going to do in five years in any field, let alone an extremely competitive sport. Yeah, not, like everyone's, not everyone's Harmon Dial, right? <laughs> no, so, exactly, or David Quadrelli or yeah. something. So, no, they, it's... It's extraordinarily difficult. You've, and here's the other thing. You fail and you succeed as a group, right, at the end of the day. You, you change scouts. You change individuals doing the job. Um, fair enough. But fundamentally, it's about the process that you have. It's about how well you adhere to it. It's about being within a structure where, you know, the, the GM and the director, for example, know that they've only seen enough games to be dangerous to the process, that you need to empower your people, that you need you know, 15 sets of eyes plus five quants plus, mm -hmm. you know, uh, uh, the, the eyes can't just be watching games. They also need to be talking to people and getting an edge and figuring out sort of what bets they want to place and how to place those bets and what overall approach do you want to go with younger players? Um, you know, a good example is a guy like Lucas Forcell, who's one of the youngest players in the draft class last year. Well, if he hadn't been picked and he had the season that he just had in the SHL, you're probably looking at a team taking him in the fourth or the fifth round. Now, no matter what happens to Forcell from here on out, that's a good pick, right? That's a good pick. His stock has gone up since draft day. When you're picking in the seventh round, that's what you're looking for. You're looking for a guy who the next year would be valued higher yep. than that, like just small incremental improvements. And we And we so often don't talk about the draft in that manner. We so often don't think about the draft in that manner, but that's sort of how scouts, how analysts, how the whole process can slowly add value to this organization. And for a Canucks organization that, again, if there's one overarching criticism of the last 10 years, it's just been a slow drip, drip bleed out of value in all, just about every arena and arresting that, changing that direction. Uh, it's going to take a lot. We've seen some of that process begin, but we're just at the outset. We're just at the outset, and the and the slope to climb, the, the path ahead remains relatively fraught for Alvin and Rutherford. And just, you know, as you said, it's so much about process when you're looking at, and that's really how you have to evaluate it, which can be so hard for people on the outside because we're not privy to the day-to-day -day process. It can be hard for people on the inside. Absolutely. From your vantage point, what are kind of the hallmarks of... Draft, scouting departments that operate at a high level, that have the right process and the right approach to getting things done, even though obviously the year-to-year -year results are just inherently going to be highly variable because it is so, there's so much randomness and so much luck involved. Honestly, step number one for me, I think the, the teams that do the best job have a very selective idea of what they're looking for. I think there's a very, a very basic sort of set of criteria uh, what makes a player a future fit for us? I think that's step one. And then step two, I think, is a is a general manager, a key executive, who's pretty hands-off in the process. I, I think an understanding that you can be dangerous by seeing enough games, biasing your own opinion. Um, you know, GMs are often pretty involved in the first round, but thereafter, uh, I think the teams that do the best job of, of this and I think about a team like Winnipeg, right? Like, Shevel Dayoff is very hands-off outside the first round, even though he comes from a scouting background mm. himself. Um, yeah, he also had, uh, you know, he also had the, the cap management side, but, you know, he had a scouting background prior to that. Uh, Shevel Dayoff is known as being pretty hands-off, and you go look at the returns for Winnipeg and how they've done at the draft table, and they need to do well at the draft table because players aren't signing there. 
um, the returns are pretty good. They they tend to punch above their weight. Um, you know, you look at teams that have more quantitative approaches. I think those teams tend to do really well. The team, though, that does the best, the best drafting team in the last five, six years, it's the Carolina Hurricanes. And that's raw volume. I mean, they have yep. really good scouts. There's some really sharp people working there. But it's not about that. It's they- about a commitment to maximizing the number of picks they make. And that, that at the end of the day, is, is crucial. Uh, here's the other team that does a really, really good job. Is, and then this is an important sort of um, thing to keep in mind. It's the Anaheim Ducks, right? And for years, for years in Vancouver, it's been like all about the draft, and we've sort of ignored that it's not enough to just draft well. The Anaheim Ducks, if you go back 15 years, are the best drafting team in the NHL. The best drafting slash player development team in the NHL. And yet, it kind of hasn't mattered because of how poorly they've managed those assets in terms of uh, you know their NHL level and the contracts they've signed and the trades that they've made and the way that they went win now, you know, at an absurd rate for several years and, you know, and end up giving like the first line center and the top pair defenseman to a division rival in the expansion process. And, yep. you know, it just wasn't good enough. But in terms of, you know, and, and it's Martin Madden, who's now retired and, and David McNabb is the other guy there. Uh, they've been the gold standard in the industry for 15 years without volume. Um, and it just hasn't translated because it's not enough to just go out and draft well. You need to also do eight, eight, nine other things exceptionally well, including manage contracts, manage the salary cap, uh, have the right strategic approach. Um, you know, it's a it's a big challenge. And so even though the Canucks had, you know, four or five draft classes, for example, over the last eight years that I'd say, hey, that that was a pretty good draft class. Right. I mean, you'd say the 2013 you like 2014 mm-hmm. you like for sure. Uh, probably 15, 15 you like. But Besser and Gaudet. And then yeah. 17, 18, 19. Well, that's six of the last, you know, 10 draft classes. You should be a powerhouse if you have six good draft classes in 10 years, but it's not enough to just draft good players. You also need to get everything else right, too, particularly in a ruthless hard cap system like the NHL is. That's the challenge here. That's the challenge here. It's to, it's to pair and improve on the draft side and get all the other strategical alignment things right which has been this club's issue far bigger than drafting over the past few years and the point about the top executive or there's the gm or the gm and the president of hockey ops being hands off i think that's a really important one and the reason when jim rutherford was hired we had a lot of people text in you know oh my goodness look at his drafting record in pittsburgh we're going to be a terrible drafting team now and I, i would be very very surprised uh, if Jim Rutherford, especially in this role as president of hockey operations, is, you know, at the draft table helping pick prospects. Like, I think it's going to be what you, what you said, you know, kind of setting the big picture. These are the skills we want to emphasize. These are the types of players we want to look at. But I don't think you can look at his draft or the Penguins drafting record under Rutherford and just immediately port that over to what's going to happen in Vancouver because it's a completely different scenario. It's a completely different context, well, a completely different situation. And it's, a, it's the situational awareness. Again, that's the situational awareness that I like the most. I've got, you know, Crosby's 29, Malkin's 30. Let's win another this is cup. It. This is it right now. Yeah, let's go. Let's trade every first round pick forever. That's the right thing to do. That's the right thing to do. Right? Again, the, the issue for the Canucks wasn't that they... Uh, in you know in the in the golden era the Gillis era wasn't wasn't that they didn't draft well it's that they made too many first round picks honestly I've I've come around to that view that's the that's the criticism that was never lobbied that should have been and 
um, you know, I, I think we'll adjust the way we think about it. Should Pedersen and Hughes and Demko all max out on their potential in three, four years, like stop picking, go Les Snead, go, go trade every pick, <laughs> be as good as you can. Go, go get, go raise that banner. Like that's the goal. Yeah, that would be nice. And so, and so the, the draft is a small part of it, but it's an important way to add value to your organization. Club's making some big changes. We'll see if it pays dividends. There's a lot of work to do clearly for an organization that, you know, even when they've done okay at the draft table, they've done okay with a process with that seemed to be well. all over the place and with a, with a whole host of palace intrigue and, and on and on. It, it would be nice for this team to just have drama free, um, you know, like set up a drama free machinery to bring talent and value into the organization. That's the, that's the goal ahead for Granado for Alvin and for others. 650-650, the Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, keep your thoughts coming in. Don't forget as well to subscribe to the Canucks Hour podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, wherever you get your podcasts, and leave us a five-star rating and review as well. Some Stanley Cup playoffs chatter coming up on the other side. It's the Canucks Hour, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back. Canucks Hour, Sportsnet 650, final segment of the week here. Happy Friday to everyone. Beautiful day out there in Vancouver. So get out and enjoy it after you listen to this, of course, or I guess take it with you. I don't know. Whatever you do with the podcast these days. Uh, Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit Avenue Machinery. And uh, as we turn our attention to the Stanley Cup playoffs, just one quick text on our scouting discussion that I wanted to read unsigned in the 650-650 Dunbar Lumber text line. We were talking about teams that have performed really well in the last decade in the draft. And this one came in, uh, no Tampa Bay over the last 10 years. And Tampa is a fascinating team from a lot of perspectives, but specifically from a draft perspective, right? Because it, it, there's something similar to the dynamic I talked about with the Red Wings, right? Where you have these two really headline picks, and I would say uh, for the Lightning, it's Nikita Kucherov in the second round and Braden Point in the third round. And but Sorelli, too. I mean, Sorelli, Sorelli as well. in the third round. They, sure. No, they, I mean, Al Murray. So Al Murray's the assistant general manager there and the head of scouting and is one of the best in the industry. I, you know, no, omission on my part. Tampa Bay, though, Tampa Bay, though, listen to Julian Brisbois talk about player development and drafting. Um, he, like, the definition of terms, the the way that he talks about it, honestly, it reminds me of the way Ian Clark talks about goaltending, where you know there's not a wasted word. They've thought really hard about sort of what they're looking for, and, and there's a collective way they speak about it. That's just good process. The Lightning are, the Lightning are definitely the gold standard, um, although, you know, I mean, you're going to have hits and misses. Well, it's a really thing. tough thing to get right. And I mean, it's not like they obviously have had some absolutely phenomenal draft picks, right? Like just going from 2014, Braden Point in the third round, 2015, Anthony Sorelli in the third round, uh, 2016, even Ross Colton in the fourth round. You know, you look beyond that or, or backwards, 2011, Nikita Kucherov in the second round, uh, Andre Vasilevsky as a goalie in the first round in 2012. And yet, when was the last time they took a difference maker in the first round? 2009? It's incredible. Yeah. They, they, you know, the, the old line I like to use is they ritualistically light their first rounders on fire as a sacrifice to the later rounds to make sure they get value. And even then, the last... Sorry, I guess it's Vasilevsky. They oh, took Vasilevsky. Vasilevsky but as a skater, it would be before that. Yeah. But the last home run pick, really, 
is you would say Ross Colton in the fourth round. And that was 2016. Sorry, and that's a home run pick? That's the fourth round. He's contributing to the team. He's, he's a really good player for a bottom six forward. But Fair I enough. Mean, I okay, mean, so then you go back to Anthony Sorelli in the third round in 2015. Yeah, that's a great pick. Amazing pick. And it's not as if they forgot how to draft since then. They're just not getting anything from the subsequent drafts. And, you know, the book's not closed on a lot of those drafts, obviously. But I think it illustrates my point. There's obviously a very good process there right? They're, they're very smart people. They know how to identify players. You're still going to have a lot of ups and downs and a lot of misses, even when you have those things in place. And I think the recent history uh, from Tampa Bay really illustrates that um, pretty well. Keep your thoughts coming in uh, 650, 650. But uh, on the menu, well, let's start with last night because you're- Well, well you're, let's quickly touch on Ryan Johnson had an a oh, yeah, yeah, availability. Yeah, we should. There's been a lot of criticism about some of the decisions that we saw in the last four games from Trent Call and the Utica Comets coaching staff. Uh, you know, Ryan Johnson had uh, a couple of notes, but he he discussed that the club still sees Jet Wu as a defenseman, even though they played him as a forward in the playoffs. Noted that he still needs to find his identity at the pro level. Uh, you know, at this point, with a player who's about to turn 22. Um, you know, the the stock is low, right? If the club gets anything out of Jet Wu at this point, that's found money. Uh, you, you have to sort of cut bait pretty quickly on defensemen. I, I'm not one who buys the, like, 200 games or, you know, guys figure it out at 25. Like, in the NHL at this point, by the time you're 25, you're you're middle-aged, right? I, I mean, I, I went through this exercise while voting for the Calder, but, like, Michael Bunting is 26, right? Michael Bunting was older than 440 of the 725 players who played uh, at least, I I can't remember where I set the limit, but it was at least 20 games in the NHL or something like that this year. It's like, by the time you're 26, you're old, you're old, you're in the top half of, of, of age categories. We see this game get younger and younger and faster and faster every year. So you just don't have a lot of time to hit and prospect attrition is so fierce. Like you can develop well and still get lapped. We talked about Cole Lind, but that's a perfect example. Like Cole Lind had, you know, one tough season, kind of bounced back as a pro, made the NHL and played okay, and yet Pod Colson and Hoaglander are coming behind him two draft classes later, and it's like, wow, those guys are incredible. Like it's so hard to keep progressing to the NHL. It's such a hard league to make a dent in. And so, you know, anyway, Jet Wu is going to need to take Huge steps yes. to, to get back on, on the path of being a, you know, a, a real NHL prospect. Um, he also mentioned that Danila Klimovich um, was benched in part because of some plays late in the year. Uh, and there was that play where he missed the check in that last game, that last loss against Manitoba, and then sort of threw a bit of a fit on the ice. Uh, that sort of is in line with one of the red marks that some teams had against him in his draft year, which was that he has a temper, a big temper on the ice. Um, you know, can you win with a guy who, you know, can lose his assignments defensively and then react in a way where he sort of comes unglued? Clearly an area of progress for him, and that sort of dates back to his draft year uh, as well. In terms of the coaching staff, Ryan Johnson noted that the AHL coaching staff is under contract for next year. That makes sense. Uh, all of these gentlemen relocated across the country mm-hmm. to, to take the job in Abbotsford um, and, you know, intimated that he was very happy with the work that they've done. Now, does that 100% end any speculation about the future of the AHL coaching staff? I don't know that it does. I don't know that it does. Um, Ryan Johnson, I, I think, has always been 
uh, supportive of Trent Cole in particular, but the the AHL coaching staff, I, I think he's extremely loyal to his people. I wouldn't say that that's the final word, but RJ, uh, you know, definitely has a big voice and and a lot of weight and a lot of credibility internally. So we'll we'll see what happens there, but certainly a certainly a, a full throated endorsement of the job the current staff did. I should mention, uh, Ryan Johnson will be on the People Show with Bick Nazar and Randy Bjanda at 2.30 today, so make sure you stay tuned for that one after he uh, did the year-end Abbotsford media availability earlier today. And as you note, RJ has a lot of weight in the organization. In fact, when Jim Rutherford and Patrick Alvin spoke to the media, they really raved about the work that he's done and how happy they have been with it. And, you know, that was in a press uh, a press conference where they weren't afraid to be critical of certain other things of the organization. So you you should take that at face value. I think when they speak as highly as they did about Ryan Johnson, there's no reason to doubt that their sincerity there. There's a directness in the way that this management group communicates that I think makes a ton of sense, uh, especially because we, as a market, pay close attention. If you say something that turns out to not be true, well, we're going to remember it, and so it's easiest to just keep. Keep the story true and straight. Give it to the fans straight. And, and you know, trust that the market's mature enough to react. I think the reaction to Rutherford's presser, for example, uh, particularly given that going in, you would have thought, oh boy, they better endorse Bruce Boudreaux. Politically, it'll be difficult to walk away from Bruce Boudreaux. And then the end of that press conference, everyone's like, well, that was refreshing. And it's like, really? Really? I mean, would you have said that if I'd said, what if they come out and criti- are critical of the performance under Boudreaux, don't you think the market will rebel? There was none of that. Instead, the market was like, yeah, straight talk. Let's go. It was a very, it was a very interesting experience because it's just so different from how this organization has done things um, to this point. Last, last thing I want to bring up before we get to the playoffs is the Bruce Boudreaux thing. So we are what? It's a 31 day month in May, right? So we are 25 days out from June 1st, which is the relevant deadline. Mm-hmm. The longer we go without confirmation, the more likely it feels to me that Boudreaux is interested in getting another offer, right? If, you know, if he doesn't notify the team pretty quick, I would say that's a sign that he's certainly exploring his options. Now, I'm not saying it's only been a week since we've known about this. Yeah. There's still teams in the in the playoff. Like, if I was bu- representing Boudreaux, if I was Boudreaux himself, I'd be taking my time. I'd be taking all the time that I'd contractually negotiated. So I'm, I'm not trying to make this into something it's not. But if you're hopeful that, that Boudreaux is going to come back, that it's going to be uncomplicated, and that he's going to, um, you know, earn the faith uh, of management in the organization next season... Um, you know, I, I do think the clock is ticking on the best outcome from that perspective. Like, if this is all going to work, I, I think we should have clarity soon. And the longer we don't, I think the more likely the departure becomes. Uh, that's just a handicapping of it uh, based on, you know, what I'm hearing within the business, with the, what, what I'm hearing within the industry. I think the longer this plays out, the more fraught it becomes from the perspective of, you know, Bruce, there he is again. <laughs> I think the real tell will be if if it's still up in the air when the various first round series end what kind of movement we see from other teams you know releasing coaches looking for coaches and and then how that impacts Boudreaux's decision right like that that to me that's the real time frame when I would expect to potentially get some clarity or it could go right down to the wire because as you said I mean that's look you negotiated that time use it you have it for a reason right you never know 
what's going to happen, but it's it's it, a, if it goes to the wire, I think it risks being a complicated reunion. Yes. You know? So we'll see where this goes, uh, but I think if we don't have clarity pretty soon, I think that's uh, you know bad news for those hoping that Boudreaux is back next season. Would you rather talk about last night's games or tonight's games? What's what's more on your mind? I mean, I know you were uh, thrilled to see the Dallas Stars oh. <laughs> drag Calgary well, but, back into the muck. But, I mean, I picked that series in six for a reason, right? When you play low-event hockey, when it's one goal event that's going to decide some games – you're going to have some results both ways. I thought Calgary was clearly the better team last night. Uh, they're they're clearly controlling play. They're clearly going to win that series, but they're going to give some games up because of just the way that that series looks. It, it it's is dreadful. Ugly. It's truly dreadful. I, you couldn't set the under low enough for me. No. Uh, not that I gamble on hockey, but if I were to, you couldn't set the under low enough for me. What, um, we're at one even strength goal, not, in, not counting the empty netter through yuck. two games. Yeah. <laughs> the um, the, I thought the Panthers, I thought the Panthers game was completely decided by goaltending. Yep, and I thought the Rangers Pittsburgh game was completely decided by goaltending, and so you know that speaks to the one edge that you'd hope to have if if this team gets into the playoffs at some point in the near future. I mean, you know, I'd love to see a Canucks playoff run with a with a team that controls play a little bit better than this one did. Certainly, like I'd love to see a Canucks playoff run where your top matchup pairs not Myers and, and OEL right not, not that those guys can't do a good job just that ideally they're slotted a little bit lower but you, you give this team a little bit more talent and go into the, the playoffs with healthy Thatcher Demko like I do want to see that because you'd have such an edge you'd have such an edge there's almost no one you could play I mean I have a ton of regard for Markstrom I have a ton of regard for Darcy Kemper but is there anyone in the west that you'd look at and say like oh boy maybe UC Soros like that's it that's sort of it. But you might say it's even there, but you're not saying, oh, no, Nashville has the you'd edge. Give, you'd, give, you'd, you'd give Nashville the edge with UC Soros. He's done it He's done it as a starter for three years. Okay. Demko's done it once. And, and that's the thing that has a chance. That edge has a chance to disappear by the time this, quick. this becomes a reality. Pretty quick. Right? Like, that could easily disappear next season. Yeah. Like, I would. I, I just want to see it. Yeah. I, just, I do want to see it. That was one of my big takeaways watching the games last night. Like, I don't think this Canucks team belonged in the playoffs by any means. But if they had gotten there... Or if they'd gotten into a playing round in a in a better world where the NHL made sense, um, you know, having having a healthy Demko would have been hilarious edge to have. It would have been a lot of fun to watch. And w- then, sorry, what was the other game last night? The other game was the um, it was uh, Nashville, Colorado, Colorado winning in overtime. Oh, oh my goodness! And shout out to Connor Ingram, who again was the only reason that game was. In overtime, because it was just pure dominance Stopped from Kale McCarr. 16 of 17 shots from McCarr and McKinnon combined. Like, hey, nice job, bud. Here's a loss. Unfair. Brutally unfair. Uh, that's the closest Nashville's coming. There was really no drama, especially in that overtime period. Like, there was one moment where Philip Forsberg had the puck where I considered that maybe Nashville could win. But that's it. That's the closest they're coming. I would bet that they are out with, like, you know, I would bet that they were they are out in four with Colorado outscoring them by something like five and a half goals over the latter two games. <laughs> this one's over. Um, by the way, hold on. Before we move on, on the Pittsburgh goaltending situation, uh, Casey DeSmith out yeah, for the playoffs. So, I know. So until Tristan Jari gets back, which could theoretically be game three still, I think, until that happens, it's going to be the Louis Deming show in Pittsburgh. Yeah, and Pittsburgh still has a shot. Oh, yeah. And, and Pittsburgh still has a shot despite the fact that they are shooting on goaltending God, right? Like... You know, if if um, Poseidon's the god of the sea, Shesterkin is the god of the pipes. Um, and 
why? Why do they still have? You have to ask yourself this: like, why does Pittsburgh still have a shot with Louis Deming shooting on Shosturkin, right? Because their method of play, their ability five on five, their um, um, ability to control the game, so greatly outpaces New York that they're still in this, even though at this point you'd probably expect New York to win considering how decisive that edge in net is. Pittsburgh still has a shot. Well, that's what you want. That's what you want. You want a team where if you lose two goalies, people are still like, yeah, but Pittsburgh, oh boy, they could still win this. That's what you want to build. It's not, you know, yeah, it would be fun to watch the playoffs with a healthy Thatcher Demko, but it would be more fun to watch the playoffs with a team that can overcome that. And the Canucks, there's no chance the Canucks would have this year. It'd be even more fun to have, you know, a team that can overcome that and has a a healthy Thatcher Demko. Totally. (laughs) That would be really great. Uh, Some some quick thoughts. Some quick thoughts on uh, on the games tonight before we go because I know we're yeah. uh, up against. The, I'll I'll, just, I'll start on Leafs Tampa and I know you picked the Leafs. I picked Tampa. This is to me this is the danger game for Toronto. Right, tied one one. Going back, Tampa's going back home. If if the Leafs lose tonight, that's where it starts to unravel. I think for the Leafs. See, I disagree with you. I think the Leafs' particular psychology almost almost you're almost better off being left for dead. It's being expected to win that gets you. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, yeah, don't get me wrong. It's an important game, especially because Vasilevsky doesn't lose consecutive games in the playoffs. But but if you lose tonight, all of a sudden everyone writes you off, and then the pressure is completely off you. You win tonight, and then all of a sudden everyone's like, they've been the better team for all but 30 minutes of the series. And that's where I think you get in danger mode. I want to make a prediction. I think the Boston Bruins are done as an elite team. I know know they have four unbelievable horses, but I legitimately think they're done as an elite team. Uh, Like, go trade for their first-round pick for 2023. And there's been chatter about Bergeron hanging them up, which, look, I don't know. I don't have any insight there. He's still such an elite player. I don't quite get it. But if that happens, I mean, talk about a team that could fall off a cliff. I think they're going to get roughed up in Boston. There's the 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 Carolina Hurricanes aren't just better than them, they're badder than them. They're they're bigger bullies. Um I think this one ends. I think this one ends tonight and um you know, th- those are really my thoughts. That's my only yeah. prediction. I think Carolina's got the Bruins number and I don't think that this game is the is the is as decisive as as the reaction will be. I actually think it might be better for the Leafs to lose tonight because the pressure comes off them entirely, and it's the yips that's going to get this team. The yips are what's going to get this team. The the only thing I'll say, and this is just presented for you know entertainment purposes, on playnow.com, the Oilers are the only road team that's favored tonight. They're minus 145. That's actually the biggest favorite on the books as well. They're more favored than any of the home teams are, which is very interesting to see uh, the betting markets liking Edmonton a lot, even on the road. After they blew Vegas up the Kings buys last the night. Woodcroft effect, and they're and they're not wrong to. Yeah, they're not wrong to. But but I think Carolina is going to run rough shot. Like Carolina to me is going to be like the um, Miami and Philadelphia in the NBA. Like they're they're just the Bruins can't keep up. They're just not the same caliber of team. That will do it for us this week. As a reminder, the People Show is up next. Ryan Johnson, Abbotsford Canucks GM, joining the show at two thirty. Don't miss it. Uh, we'll be back on Monday. It's the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet six fifty.